Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today, Congressman Thomas Massey, a voice of reason when it comes to budget and spending, somebody who has been warning about the mounting debt, about the potential for interest rates and insolvency in America. He's here to join us as the national debt is about to tip over to $28 trillion and in over a 12-month period. The United States, if the new COVID bill is passed by the House Democrats and gets signed into law, the one-year spending for U.S. government will have reached $7 trillion in one year. There are consequences to that, particularly with inflation being talked about, rising interest rates, markets. Uh, We're going to break all that down with Congressman Tom Massey, who has uh, not been that popular because he is the person crying in the desert that we are America is reaching a tipping point. A lot of the economists I talk to are having similar fears now. I think uh, what uh, Congressman Massey has been talking about is coming into more clear focus as people look at a perfect storm of COVID-19, interest rates, uh, inflation, a lot of different things happening at once. Uh, And we're going to have the congressman here for the whole show to really delve into what's going on, what's in the COVID bill that uh, is problematic, and how do we get anyone in America to pay attention to this? Because it seems as though most people are numb to the billions have become trillions or numb to that. Uh, They're numb to the wasteful examples of uh, spending like we highlight every day with the golden... Uh, Horseshoe Award every week here at at the Just the News. So we're going to talk to the congressman about that and get his thoughts, get his ideas. We'll also ask him about the latest in the Capitol riot investigation. Who knew what when? Uh, What did you know and when did you know it is going to be an important question for Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and uh, others. And we're learning a lot about that uh, thanks to the hearing earlier this week. But we've barely scratched the surface. There's a much bigger story we need to get to. And then uh, we're going to do a quick commercial break now. When we come back, before we get to Congressman Thomas Massey, I want to break down the scoop that I promised you that we would deliver. It went up this morning. It's a big one. For those of you who have followed all of my uh, Russia collusion reporting and, and the abuses inside the FBI, this one is the big one. This one is probably one of the top three most important documents I've obtained over the four-year journey of trying to tell the American people the truth about what went on with Russia. So we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, before we get to Congressman Thomas Massey of the great state of Kentucky, a quick tutorial on what we learned 
in the FBI documents. Back in a second. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as I said, in a couple of minutes, Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky, a really fun interview, uh, always colorful, always energetic, uh, and so impassioned about an issue that most Americans should be impassioned about, but we seem to be ignoring it. The federal deficit, the federal debt, uh, America reaching a tipping point as we uh, amass what is now a $28 trillion national debt, larger or almost as large as the entire American economy. And we're about to tack on $1.9 trillion more to that. Uh, there are consequences, and I want to talk to Congressman Thomas Massey about that. He has been the leading voice on this. It used to be Republicans worried about these things, but much of the Republican Party today uh, doesn't even talk about debt or fiscal responsibility or cutting spending or cutting government. Uh, it is uh, it is a crisis on the horizon that's going to catch up to us one day, probably sooner than we know. All right. So I told you yesterday uh, that we would have an exclusive story and we have delivered uh, overnight. I broke uh, this story. If you go to the Just the News website, go to the top of the website, you'll see this headline. Once secret FBI informant reports reveal wider ranging operation to spy on Trump campaign. And what, is, what makes this? We, we know that the FBI was spying on the Trump campaign. We know they targeted Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, that they misled the court. So maybe you say, I think I've heard this, right? This is not new. Well, this is new for a different reason. There's a very significant reason why these documents are important. First, let me tell you what they are. They are the FBI's handling reports, the operational reports, for the other informant in the investigation. The most famous informant, Christopher Steele, the author of the Steele dossier. You know what he did. You know what garbage was in, in that and how the intelligence community ultimately debunked it. But the second informant is a guy named Stefan Halper, longtime academic, worked uh, writing studies for the Pentagon, was well known throughout uh, Republican politics, going back to Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Um, and the FBI was using him as an informant for years, and they brought him into the Russia case. And one of the things they did uh, that we know already, not new, they ran him up against Carter Page and recorded Carter Page secretly. They ran him up against George Papadopoulos. And in both instances, the uh, tape recordings, the transcripts, the work of Stefan Halper actually unveiled or uh, gave to the FBI evidence of innocence evidence that what the FBI thought about Russia collusion was wrong. All right, so we've known that part about Stefan Halper because of my recent reporting. What we didn't know was that Stefan Halper was being asked to look at a lot of other Trump officials, uh, Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, uh, Peter Navarro, among the names that show up in these handling reports. Uh, why is that significant? Well, they weren't targets at the time. Uh, and uh, also another guy uh, that uh, did a lot of uh, foreign policy advising and worked with Papadopoulos and Carter Page, a guy named Sam Clovis. So uh, that means that the net, the dragnet that the FBI 
uh, was casting to try to find Trump-Russia collusion, which, by the way, never existed, uh, that it was wider than the predicated documents, wider than the authorization that they had. But the most important of all of the sentences in these 30, 40 pages that I posted. You can read all these. You don't have to take my word for it. You shouldn't. You should go to the dig-in section of my story, read the documents. But there is one passage that exceeds all uh, passages because it has a significance. We have always been told that the FBI investigation was narrowly predicated. Did Carter Page um, uh, collude with Russia Uh, by meeting with some Russians, by the way, he didn't meet with them. And did George Papadopoulos, was he involved in some way in the hacking of Hillary Clinton's emails? The answers are no and no. That's what we know historically now. But that was what we were told. It was a narrow case. Now we find out that the investigation's intent was far broader. And let me just read you. This is a direct quote from the documents I got yesterday, laying out what the mission was going to be for Stefan Halper. Quote, the Crossfire Hurricane investigative team is attempting to determine if anyone in the Trump campaign is in a position to have received information, either directly or indirectly, from the Russian Federation regarding the anonymous release of information during the campaign that would be damaging to Hillary Clinton. The FBI was worried about protecting Hillary Clinton from damaging information, and they were casting a net not targeted at Carter Page or George Papadopoulos, which would be narrowly predicated. Anyone, anyone, direct or indirect. This is a giant dragnet, a giant fishnet, a giant fishing expedition. It's not what the FBI is authorized to normally do. And uh, don't take my word for it. I reached out to Kevin Brock, the former uh, intelligence chief of the FBI. He worked for Robert Mueller when Robert Mueller was the director long before Comey got there. He retired, but he's the guy that helped implement all of the current rules for informants, how you handle them, for uh, undercover investigations, for FISAs. And he took a look at these documents and he said, John, what does this show? It shows that this was not a lawfully predicated investigation. That is a big deal. It means the FBI was intruding on the civil liberties of Americans without a lawful reason, lawful predicate. And they were fishing. Uh, They were fishing. And I think that that's what's so important about this. He describes in great detail what the rules are versus what was done. But let me just read you this quote from Kevin Brock, a sage voice. He's not a partisan career FBI man, career G man, still does work in the intelligence community as a contractor. Important important voice because he's an honest broker. He's respected by all sides. Quote, normally when the FBI opens an investigation on a U.S. citizen, it has quite specific facts justifying an investigation of that person. But here, what the electronic communications that you have are saying is that they don't know who is involved and they are just conjecturing uh, and that someone in the Trump campaign might be in a position to receive help from Russia. You just can't open a full field investigation on conjecture. That's what Kevin Brock, the former intelligence chief of the FBI, the expert on these issues, said, quote, he goes on. If you look at the FBI's ECs dispassionately, there is no clearly predicated basis for an investigation of U.S. citizens. So it looks instead like subterfuge, like subterfuge to justify an open-ended inquiry. The only sane logical explanation why the Crossfire Hurricane team would doggedly perpetuate such an unfounded investigation is political bias. The former FBI intelligence chief, the man 
who helped put in place the current rules designed to protect Americans from inappropriate civil liberties violations when the FBI is doing FISA and other things, says this wasn't lawfully predicated. It was a fishing expedition. And the only reason it got extended for what turns out to be three years, you ready for this? He says is political bias. That's the only explanation. He clearly takes on Michael Horowitz, who claimed bias didn't affect this. But the man who implemented the rules, looks at this and says, my agency was wrong. That's important. That's why this story is so important today. All right, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky, the man who really has been the siren warning about America's debt. And we're getting to a tipping point. A lot of economists are worried. Um, uh, So we're going to talk to the congressman about how we got there, why we got there, what we can do about it, if anything, and if there's is there anyone in America in leadership in Congress in the in the administration that really has a concern about this? We'll discuss all that with Congressman Thomas Massey when we get back from the commercial break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, someone on the front lines of not only policy, but also trying to protect our budget and our future of America uh, uh, from oblivion of debt. Uh, Congressman Thomas Massey joins us. Uh, Congressman, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to join you from the occupied territory of Congress. <laughs> that uh, that barbed wire is gleaming today, huh? <laughs> yes, the razor wire is gleaming. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's really something. Well, uh, I want to start in a place because you have been one of the most influential voices all throughout COVID and long before COVID. But just focusing on spending, we were 24 hours or less away from the House Democrats likely passing a $1.9 trillion COVID bill. That's on top of all the other trillions we spent last year. Uh, and uh, I think I walked by the bus stop today, saw a Pete Peterson Foundation ad that had the um, uh, the debt up to $28 trillion right now. You've been really raising concerns about this. Uh, tell us what tomorrow's vote means t- for the future of America when it comes to debt and spending. Well, first of all, you're right. I've been in front of this. I was that guy on March 27th. You were. CNN called the most hated man in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Because I had the gall to stand up and say, if you're going to spend $2 trillion, you need to show up and vote on it. And I had everybody's ire that day. But And, and I predicted that this would get out of hand, this would become a regular occurrence, and we'd be spending a trillion or two trillion dollars at a clip. You're right, we're at 28 a trillion. I've got a debt clock here in my office, and this is the bill that could put us up to 30 trillion dollars, which was a prediction that I made back this summer. I remember. I remember when I first came to town as a young reporter in the 90s, the big tipping point was we can never let America's debt get bigger than its annual GDP, and we've now on the verge of surpassing that as well, right? Which is one of the stability issues that markets look at from from a solvency standpoint. 
is there any will besides your voice? Because you're obviously one of the most eloquent voices and you've been warning about this moment for a long time. Are there any other voices out there that are willing to step back and say, we got it. We got to tackle the debt. We got to do something now. No. <laughs> well, I mean, there, <laughs> there are there are a few in the Senate. And there are a few here in the House. But as far as, um, you know, leaders in the Republican Party, I'm not seeing them. I don't see them. It's just it's an argument over whether we should spend two trillion this time or one trillion. Right. It's not. It's not. How are we going to pay for one trillion or two trillion? It's just there's no uh, measurement of how much we should spend. And if you look at the spending in this bill, it's um, you know there's the unemployment part of it, right? Which is which that's necessitated by the governors killing their own economies for the most part. Some of it's generally COVID-related unemployment. That's only that's less than ten percent of this bill is for the unemployment. And then there are the checks that are going out. That's right. about twenty percent of this bill. The question is, where's the other seventy percent going? You've highlighted some of your favorite things that just have nothing to do with COVID. Why don't we tell folks some of the things that really uh, they don't have anything to do with COVID? Well, these are here are the normal ones. So, uh, the 135 million for the National Endowment for Humanities, of and of course, if you're going to support the humanities, you got to support the arts. So, there's 135 million for the National Endowment for the Arts. Unreal. Uh, that that has nothing to do with COVID. The other thing is. Some of the educational spending, elementary and the secondary school relief, some of this won't be spent for 10 years. Wow. Like, how can you argue that this is emergency spending when, uh, as far as the education spending goes, 80, 90 percent of that's not even going to happen in the next year? Yeah, that's, uh, that's remarkable. And then there, you know, there's some of the ideological spending. You can argue whether it's wasteful or not wasteful or politically motivated or not politically motivated, but you can't can't say that it's COVID relief. Like $50 million that's going to project grants and contracts for family planning services. Now, that is code, or it has been in the past. That's always what they call it when the money goes to Planned Parenthood. Exactly. Right. So you've got that's that's not a you know a covid relief thing yeah these are these are serious things because they, they we're we're and also we're going to pass this through an emergency uh, procedure parliamentary procedure um when you step back at this moment now uh we've been blessed with low interest rates for a very long time but if interest rates are have to go up because inflation starts to increase which is a natural potential natural outcome of all the spending we did last year uh and over the last uh, 12 months uh how big a hurt is the u.s government if uh interest oh. rates start to rise well, I used to use the number of 5%. Like if the government has to pay the same interest rate that you pay for, let's say, a house or right. commercial property, at 5% with a $20 trillion principle or, uh, of debt, right. then your, your interest, that's the easy number, five times uh, two is 20. So it's $1 trillion of interest if it's 5% and $20 trillion of debt. But now I have to revise my numbers if you had 3.3% interest, now that we have $30 trillion of debt, you will burn a trillion dollars of interest every year. Now, that trillion dollar number is significant because in a normal year, that's the total amount of money the U.S. government spends right. that's uh, discretionary. Discretionary, right? Not the entitlement programs, right? 
Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a big number. It erodes all of our capability to expand, to deal with infrastructure. Why, what's it going to take to get people in this town to do? I, I was here when Gingrich and Clinton were able to get a balanced budget. I mean, that was a historic moment. <clears throat> and then we've, over the last 20 years, starting with the Bush administration and all the way through Obama and Trump, uh, we've just blown away any sense of, of uh, solvent budgets. Is there anything we can do? Is there, is there any effort that could be started uh, to, to really focus on the, the long-term consequences of this spending? Poof. I feel like we're kind of almost headed where Puerto Rico got to, you know, Puerto Rico, (laughs) the only thing that stopped them from spending more money was when their creditors quit lending it to them. Right. And uh, that's, you know, typically if you're uh, in debt or about to go bankrupt, you don't come to that realization until people quit loaning you money. And it's too late then. Yeah. The first thing they do is they raise your interest rates because your risk the risk of getting paid back goes up. Right. And um, so the interest rates are going to go up and I think we'll still keep spending money. There will be nothing to regulate it here. People will just borrow money to pay for the interest. But at some point you become such a risk that you're, you know, the people who are financing you refuse to loan you any more money. And I, I've been here eight years now, which might be too long, John, I don't know, (laughs) but, uh, I don't think I've become part of the problem. I'm still fighting. You are. No, there's no doubt. In eight years, I haven't seen the fiscal restraint that's necessary to stop us from, from hitting that, that final bumper, which is when your creditors say, that's it. We're not serving you anymore. Yeah, it's uh, I you know it's funny because Republicans have always talked about the importance. I mean, they don't even talk about it now, but for the longest time they did. And you know you'd have Senator Coburn and Senator Grassley every year, and there was always after they blew through the balanced budget in in two thousand, the answer was, well, we just got to get through nine eleven, and we get through these wars, we'll be okay. And then it was, well, we just got to get through the Obama years, and then oh, we just got to get through the thing, and now it's you got to get through COVID. At some point, the excuses run out. You know the the uh, the, the dead man's coming to to collect. Um, it, it does seem extraordinary that the American people are even apathetic. Is there an education campaign? What, what can be done just from a public communication standpoint to, to get this focused on? Well, when I first got here, there was something called Simpson Bowls. Right. Do you remember that? I it was sure a deal do. where they said, okay, we're going to increase your taxes by, you know, that'll be like one fourth of it and three fourths of it will be cuts. So we'll cut some spending and it will increase the taxes. And honestly, that seems very reasonable compared to what happens now. Now, when John Boehner and Paul Ryan were in power, we produced Republican budgets. Oh, they balanced John, but, <laughs> but you had to look at a 10 year window. That's right. And, you know, right. So the budgets were 10 years. And if you looked at the first two years, they spent more money, not less. And it was in the third year where they started to cut spending. Now, why right. is, the third year significant because every congressman is, uh, you know, can win reelection before the third year rolls around. And then you do another budget with a 10 year horizon that spends more money than it saves in the first two years. So what needs to happen? You know, hopefully we get back into the majority, but that's, that's a necessary, but not sufficient condition for uh, balancing the budget. And once we get in the majority, we've got to have the fiscal restraint. I'll be honest with you, 
and you know, to his credit or in his defense, Trump never promised to balance the budget or right. cut. No, spending. he didn't. No, he didn't. He did. No. And so there was he had he came in with no constraints and. You know, if the president's going to spend the money, well, I guess, you know, a lot of the Republicans in Congress will vote for to spend the money. Um, but we, we're going to need a, a leader, whether that's a Speaker of the House or a Senate Majority Leader or a president, Republican president. Of course, we have to wait four years for that. Right. Who, who gets everybody sobered up and says we're going to have to cut spending or at least – Go back to the ridiculous spending we had, which was trillion dollar deficits per year. Right. Six and seven trillion dollar deficits. I it's the doubling rate of our debt is, is one yeah. thing that bothers me. That's a great you know, point. You, you can look at this statistic and you were saying when you first got to town, what was the number that was considered? I, you couldn't go over. Well, you couldn't go over the, the annual GDP, which at that time was maybe about 15, 16 trillion a year. Uh, yep. And of course, you know, because the American economy has kept growing, we've been fortunate. I think the number now, I think the GDP is right around 28, 30 trillion, if I remember correctly now. So mm -hmm. we're, our debt is at that. But that was always the tipping point. People said, if you got to that point, America was in trouble. Well, we're at that point now. And um, it's remarkable. And, uh, you know, I remember when $200 billion in deficit was a big deal or uh, in a year. And now, you know, that's <laughs> that, that, that year is not even possible in the current spending environment. Um, well, yeah, I mean, let's say we got twenty-eight trillion dollars in debt, right? And we've got a twenty-eight trillion dollar GDP. Here's another: if your interest rate goes to four percent, right? Well, four percent of twenty-eight trillion—that's that's how much of your GDP is being wasted. Mm. And when and what I tell people is not just four percent of all labor but four percent of the robots labor in this yep. country is wasted right four exactly. percent of the 3d printers <laughs> and yep. effort is wasted on the interest on the debt it's just remarkable i mean it really is a, it's a problem that americans are going to wake up one day and say how did we get here and they're going to be real angry but you and many other people who appreciated you in congress really had these concerns that's why we had the simpson bowles commission and earlier commissions um, why we're talking about it, and, and we opened the show, you know, talking about the occupation or the, the high security at the Capitol. Um, we watched the Senate hearing, and I wonder if you feel like you've gotten the answers that you need from the leadership in Congress, because I keep hearing that, you know, everyone's trying to portray this as an intelligence failure, but it appears that the House Administration Committee and the leadership got briefed in advance on this FBI report and other threats. Are you convinced that the storyline about what really happened and who's responsible for the Capitol riot attacks or the, at least the bad part of security, do we have the real answers yet? The longer I serve in government, the more easy it is to convince me that it was uh, ineptitude <laughs> instead of a conspiracy. Right. I uh, so many things are just explained here by incompetency. Yeah. That would seem like a conspiracy. I will. <laughs> I will say this, and I don't. I don't mean to be obscene, uh, but the night before January sixth, right? Uh, I'd never seen so many truck nuts in D.C. Like dually pickup trucks with you know <laughs> driving around town, things on the tow hitch. Yep. Uh, it was clear that DC was the the composition of DC had changed, yeah. and that it was going to be very active the next day. And this wasn't these. This was uh, 
not your usual makeup of lobbyists and whatnot. And there were sure. people from all over the country here in Washington, D.C., and something was going to happen the next day. Uh, you know, who and what precipitated it? I There was clearly a failure of leadership with the Capitol Hill police. Right. Uh, all of that's not been answered. Ironically, Nancy Pelosi's response to that has been to make us walk through metal detectors when we go to votes. Right. And um, I think that's that's sort of vulgar that now the police here suspect members of Congress um, as being threats instead of outside threats. And I wonder how much of the effort is spent internally now evaluating members of Congress. You know, there's a report that our phone records have been uh, seized by the FBI right. uh, to investigate. So what they're doing is they are now just blaming Republican members of Congress. Uh, one of my colleagues has been kicked off her committee. T today she called a motion to adjourn and people were grumbling about that. I say, guys, if you kick me off committees, motion to adjourn is going to be the least of your worries. <laughs> like, you know, they were grumbling. This is an opening offer, huh? 600 yards and take a vote. Yeah, yeah. this is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, of course, uh, of course. And I'm like, you, you guys gave her all this free time to do this. Uh, this is your fault. And anyways, it's been... <laughs> It's been discouraging. It's gotten really partisan, and and Pelosi's response is not to own. It look the sergeant at arms works for Nancy Pelosi. That's right. She's the mayor of the Capitol. And the the Capitol Hill police report to uh, the police board, which reports to Pelosi. You know, reports to leadership. Right. And um, it's it was her failure to do security. I think they it was a failure of training, a failure of standard operating procedures. I, you know, I'm really saddened that the woman was shot when when she got to the precipice of entering the chamber of the House of Representatives. Right. Before that had happened, there were many breakdowns. There should have been less than lethal interventions before she got to the point where she was, you know, the the folks were about to gain access to actual members of Congress. But hopefully they'll take something away from this. They'll they'll learn something. Um, I'm not sure they will if they're going if their response is now to try and disarm members of Congress. Yeah, and that's certainly been one of the, the the overriding messages we've heard this weekend. CPAC occurs down in Orlando, and uh, often it's a moment to reflect on where the state of conservatism conservatism is in America. Um, as the party turns to the 2022-2024 elections. What does it need to do to to uh, reconnect with its values? Obviously, fiscal sanity would be one of them that they could reconnect with. But uh, what do you think the Republican Party needs to do to create both, you know, trueness to its values and also appeal to a lot of people who are going to look at the Democratic agenda with some distrust and, and anger? Well, you know, it used to be the case that the Democrats could be good on a couple things, but now they've become consistently bad. They're bad on the First Amendment, for instance. Yeah. They were always bad on the Second Amendment. And sometimes they'd be better than Republicans on the First Amendment, but they're they're horrible on that. And so they are consistently now for bigger government. I would say this to anybody who's a Trump fan and anybody who is not a Trump fan within the Republican Party. Trump represented the majority of people in this country who felt they had no voice in Washington, D.C., that they were not being listened to. 
he was the he was the vessel right for carrying that that message and th- those emotions and that logic to Washington D.C. And now he's you know there are people who want to dismiss him or to write him off, but if you do, you can't forget the reason he was so popular because he gave a voice to those people who felt voiceless. And so that's what Republicans need to do. We need to listen to the people out there and we need to act on our principles. For too long, Republicans have run on a set of principles and they get here and govern like Democrat light. We can't be doing that anymore. The Democrats are there. They do the opposite. They, they run as moderates and then they, (laughs) then they govern as socialists. Yeah. Yeah, they're much more true to their liberal values uh, than the Republicans. Other Republicans have made just so many compromises that that really contradict the core values of what the conservative movement has been since you know since '64 with Goldwater. The um, last question, because I know you got to get back to work. I just uh, what is the most important thing Americans should be watching for in the next couple of weeks as Congress goes through? You got HR one, you've got the stimulus bill. Uh, you're going to have, you know, some debate about um, uh, big tech, uh, more oversight hearings. What what should we be keeping our eye on that's most important to the American people? Well, first of all, I, I tell my constituents I never vote for H.R. less than 10. <laughs> so you mentioned H.R. 1. Anything that's H.R. and a single digit is going to be the worst of the worst. Uh, and even when Republicans are in the majority, yeah, I typically same, won't same vote rule, for huh? H.R. Yeah. <laughs> less than 10. Uh, because those are the bills th- that are going to radically change things uh, for the worse. Or uh, in the Republicans' case, a lot of times the lobbyists own HR less than ten. Right. And when it's the Democrats are in charge, it's the it's I the radical realize. left. Yeah. So watch for that. But watch for basic constitutional erosion. Okay. Sometimes we get in the weeds and we ask, how much is the check going to be? Should we? What should the response be to COVID? Uh, I am worried that they are going to extend this pandemic. I hope people will start pushing back every uh, at every opportunity against the mandates, whether it's from governors or whether it's from the federal government, because they have no intention of, of uh, giving up any ground that they've gained during this pandemic. I'm not saying that the virus hasn't been lethal or dangerous, sure. but, the, but they have taken this opportunity to erode your rights. I'm worried we're going to get no fly lists. We're going to get no buy lists for guns. Uh, they're, you know, they've shown that they're going to use suspicion, not probable cause. They got, they got a new legal standard for taking away your rights, and they're going to justify it. Uh, so, you know, I have a friend who said, you know, I always thought they would take the Second Amendment first, and then they would come after the First Amendment. He said, but they're going at it in a different order that surprised me. They're taking your First Amendment and then going after the Second Amendment. They want to cancel any citizen and any legislator who is speaking about less government because they view that as the threat. Any diminution of government is a threat to them. And Every hearing in the in, that I've had here, or every committee that I'm in, is having a hearing about radical, homegrown extremists, and they're not talking about the riots this summer, where post offices and federal buildings were burned down, right. and property was seized by anarchists. They're talking about the 75 million people that voted for President Trump in November. 
Yeah, that's uh, you're seeing that more and more that that uh, that storyline just being extended out. It isn't just a few people at the Capitol. It's all 75 million. This is mm-hmm. a struggle for, for the future of America. And uh, there's so much that we're going to have to learn and get educated on. And uh, Congressman, I can't thank you enough for the time you spend. You've been such an important voice on the budget. And uh, we try to keep our eye on that ball. I know a lot of people are trying to hide that ball every day so we don't know what's going on. But we thank you for, for all that fiscal responsibility and for educating us. And we're going to get you back on soon to follow up and see if we've made any improvements. Well, thank you. I've got three tests before I vote for any bill. This bill fails all three. Number one, is it constitutional? Number two, can we afford it? Number three, is this the role of federal government or should we leave this to the states and local governments? And this this bill that's coming up fails all three of those. And you can rely on me to apply that test to every bill that comes in front of me. Well, there's something that we should all pay, uh, pay attention to. Those are three common sense ideas, aren't they? They used to be common sense, and now it seems like no one uses them anymore. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank goodness you're there. Well, Congressman, thank you so much, and uh, we'll be checking in with you as the year goes on. Thank you again. All right. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. All righty now. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. We're so grateful that Congressman Massey joined us. A lot of food for thought there. Very colorful interview, but also really important really important sentiments that used to be carried by all members of Congress. I remember when I got here in 1990 covering Washington, D.C., you know, there were many congressmen, uh, the the famous Democrat from Wisconsin, Bill Proxmire, just as concerned about spending as Bob Dole was and as so many other people. As the years went along, there were commissions that were going to get on top of this, and we didn't. Uh, the Simpson-Bowles Commission, which we just talked about, was one of them. Uh, we had uh, the late Senator Tom Coburn, who tragically died of cancer a couple of years ago, he used to give out an award and put out a waste book. And we focused on how much tax dollars, your hard earned tax dollars are wasted today. Nobody seems to care. We do adjust the news, not only because we do interviews like the one we had with Congressman Tom Massey, but also every Sunday, Sophie Mann, my colleague, writes an article called the golden horseshoe that highlights one egregious example of how your hard-earned tax dollars were wasted. If you care, read that, check that out every Sunday morning. It's important. Uh, If you care about the deficit, go back and re-listen to what Congressman Massey said. He has been the one voice in Congress that's been consistent. All right, folks, that wraps it up for the day. We'll be back tomorrow on Friday to wrap up a crazy week. Uh, Lots of things to talk about. I think we've got a surprise guest you're going to really like a lot. But until then... Have a God, uh, may God bless you. May God bless this country as he always has. Have a wonderful night with your family and friends. And when you need that news fix, go to justthenews.com. We'll try to deliver. All right. Be back with you tomorrow. 
calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.